Exploding heads, prosthetics that cut, halo dives, and Samuel Jackson playing a deranged megalomaniac. We'll look at all of these and more as we're cracking the code of the influences of the 2014 movie, Kingsman, The Secret Service. Hi, this is Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzotto. From SpyMovieNavigator.com. In anticipation of the upcoming The Kingsman prequel, let's look at the movie that started it all, Kingsman, The Secret Service. All right, so we'll decode the influences from movies, legends, real life, and TV shows concerning this first Kingsman movie. In the first scene, an agent dies, and his code name was Lancelot. This makes us obviously think of the chivalrous knights of the round table. Yeah. And then we're introduced to Merlin and an agent in training named James who's given the name Lancelot. So now we have a Merlin and a dead Lancelot and a live Lancelot. Mm, We're going to talk more about these medieval names a little bit later in this podcast. We then jump to a scene where Harry gives a medal to a young Eggsy in a scene that is shot very similarly to the scene in Pulp Fiction, where Christopher Walken's character, Captain Coombs, gives the watch to a young Butch. It's more the setting and the way they shot the scene, really, not the dialogue here. But if you've seen Pulp Fiction, our guess is... You'll have that feeling too, don't you think? I mean, oh, absolutely, absolutely. I had the exact same feeling yeah. there, and I even went went back and watched the scene in Pulp Fiction again just to make sure <laughs> yeah. that I was getting that same feeling. Okay. I mean, these scenes are very different, but man, they have a similar feel. Yeah, they do. They do. Now, Eggsy's playing with a snow globe that's got some snow-covered mountains in it. Yeah, I like that. And we <laughs> switch to them, right? So there's no credits. There's just a title that comes up. So this is done in the same way that most of the Bourne movies are done, where there's a minimalistic title, which is very different than what we normally see with Bond or Mission Impossible movies. Yeah. So we enter a cabin where Mark Hamill plays a yeah, character. Mark called, Hamill. Okay. All right. Here's yeah. Mark Hamill. I'm sorry, but I can't, I can't see Mark Hamill in anything without thinking about Star Wars from 44 years ago. I mean, I'd love to have him on the show, actually. He'd be kind of cool, I think. But yeah. I think that would anyway. be awesome to have him on the show. Yeah. But anyway, here he is. <laughs> yeah, here he is, and he's playing a character called Professor Arnold. Yeah. Now, the background on this name is kind of interesting because the character was supposedly named after James Arnold Taylor, who was a friend of both Mark Hamill and Mark Millar, who wrote the comic book series that the movies are based oh, on. Okay. However, in the comic book series... Mark Hamill happened to be one of the celebrities kidnapped by a villain called Dr. Arnold instead. So here he's not necessarily a villain, and he's kidnapped. And in the book comics, he was playing Mark Hamill, not Professor Arnold. But I still love the way they kind of try to pull that name in and tie it all together a little bit. I think it's kind of cool. Now, you know, we mentioned that Star Wars is where we first yeah. really kind of saw Mark Hamill. Yeah. Um, there's some other callbacks to the Star Wars series as well. Both Luke and Eggsy save a princess yep. in this. So we'll find later in this movie, yep. Eggsy saves a princess. And we also have Luke introduced to his legacy by an older mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah, But true. in this movie, we're going to find that Eggsy is to be introduced to his legacy by this hairy guy who's his older mentor. So yeah. there's some parallels here between Star Wars and what we see here inside of the Kingsman. Yeah, and I like when you see these connections, too, because they're not a coincidence. All right, so then they offer Professor Arnold some 1962 Dalmore scotch. The henchmen have pallets like James Bond. <laughs> yeah. No, I... <laughs> kind of, you don't think of that with the henchmen, right? Yeah, right. And now, now, I also wonder, is the year 1962 a nod to Dr. No, which was when the first James Bond movie was released? Well... 
or a great year for Dalmore Scotch. Well, I, I, I looked that up, Dan, and you know, there's not a lot about the '62 vintage, if you'll call it a vintage. It's Scotch. It's not wine, yeah, right, but yeah. right. Yeah. But there's not much about that. But I did find a bottle of it online that I could have bought for sixty-four thousand dollars. <laughs> well, I, I, I thought I thought I. How pass. many did you get? I got I got none. And ah. they just released they released a six bottle set, one from each decade that just was auctioned off for over a million dollars. Yeah, well, hey, in in 2011, there was a one bottle of 62 Dalmore that went for 250,000. So maybe you should oh. snatch up that 64,000. Yeah, that 64,000 sounds like a good deal. It could be, deal. A, good, it could be a good buy. <laughs> <laughs> buy me one too. When yeah. you're at. Then we get a scene right out of a James Bond movie without doubt. A guy is at the door who ends up being the new Lancelot from the opening of the movie. He's dressed in this wonderful vested suit. He's got a handgun with a silencer and portrays almost every spoof of James Bond that he can. Yeah, really. It's like, <laughs> hmm, let's see, who's he trying to be? Yeah. And his name was James before they renamed him Lancelot. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, what about that? All right, so this Lancelot, James guy, he kills the four henchmen in the room and strikes a very James Bond-like pose. He then grabs the scotch, takes a sip, and identifies it as a 1962 Dalmore, <laughs> just like Bond would do. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, that's great. All right. Yeah, let's see. Can we be more Bond-like? <laughs> yeah. So there's a knock on the door, and when he goes to answer it, he's split in two by a villain named Gazelle. She didn't have feet but had blade prosthetics that were blades, like sword blades, really. And the split in two was, to me, it looked obviously a little comic book-like, right? Yes. I mean, I, I think the Kingsman well, movies are... Well, this is based are, on a comic book, so... Yeah, I mean, I think the Kingsman movies are kind of a combination of, of real spy stuff, comic stuff, and spoof stuff. But yep. they're entertaining in a lot of ways. So this gazelle splits the guy in two. So there goes Lancelot. <laughs> Yeah, so we've now lost two Lancelots. <laughs> yeah, there goes another Lancelot. So anyway, like I said, I think it's a little comic book-like. But speaking of comics, really, in the in the comics, Gazelle was really a man with bionic legs. And here they made Gazelle female, played by actress Sophia Butella. Yeah, yeah and she and she does a she does a great job here. And I, I like the fact that they they've changed this to these blades instead of the bionic legs because for an action movie there's some pretty cool things they can do with that and there's some interesting background on this character because they had originally signed a double amputee snowboarder named amy purdy to play gazelle but she dropped out of the film so she could join the olympics because filming had been delayed then they also had south african sprint runner oscar pistorius he was offered to play gazelle but he turned it down so he could focus on his running Okay. And he's the one you, you think of when you, you think of the Blade Runner. Now, kind of an ironical twist here is that Pistorius shot and killed his girlfriend, shooting her Ooh. through a door. In Ooh. real life, he did this. <laughs> yeah, not, not good. So this was in February 2013, <laughs> eight months before filming started on this movie. So can yeah. you imagine if, they'd, if they had started filming and that all went down? And so he shot his girlfriend through a door. In this movie, Gazelle shoots someone through a door. Hmm. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, that's the kind of reality you went on. Yeah. All right. yeah, okay, let's move off this. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we meet Valentine. He's played by Samuel L. Jackson. Valentine has a lisp in this movie. Supposedly, Jackson started using the lisp when they filmed his first scene, 
He told Vaughn, the director, that he, Jackson, had a lisp that he had overcome when he was a child. He thought it would give the character a Bond villain feel. <laughs> okay, so we know that many Bond villains have had either physical dysfunctions or disfigurations. So they they went with it. And Valentine... Yeah, they sure did. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this guy, Valentine, in the movie, he doesn't like violence or blood. So it makes him kind of a, an interesting villain. This is really brilliant casting here, as we're used to Jackson playing violent roles where blood is no problem. So this is kind of cool, a little different twist for him. Oh, absolutely. That, I mean, you talk about playing against type. I mean, yeah. he's usually the one who he's firing the gun and right at the person's face and watching it and everything. And now here it's like, oh, I don't like blood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a I, I couple think, of parts where he's going to see it. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is pretty good. All right, so now let's go ahead and talk about the tailor shop. So Harry goes into a tailor shop on Seville Road in Westminster, London. Clothes are a very important part of this movie. You mentioned that Lancelot came in wearing that wonderful suit. Mm -hmm. The agents are dressed very well throughout, even the agents in training. Now, supposedly there were two influences for this. The first was Vaughn's, the director's experience when he turned 18. His mother got him his first bespoke suit at a tailor called Huntsman at 11 Seville Road. (laughs) Now, the second inspiration was the clothes and actions of Sean Connery as James Bond. Vaughn had seen a documentary, and it was talking about how Connery was molded by director Terrence Young in terms of his clothes and his air of confidence. And we've talked about that on other podcasts. Mm -hmm. Vaughn liked this and thought he'd apply it to the Kingsman movies. So it kind of goes hand in glove. Well. (laughs) It turns out that the tailor shop in the movie was the same shop where Vaughn got his first bespoke suit, this shop called Huntsman. They just changed the glass in front. Now, the suits in the movies were all done by English designers, and they were really well done. Mm -hmm. In fact, Vaughn, while they were doing the filming of this thing, made the designs available for sale. Wow. So there's a website, mrporter.com, where you could have gone and bought those suits for about $1,700 to $2,000. Mm-hmm. Now, today, you can go to mrporter.com and get the suits and clothing from The Kingsman, the the prequel. Plus, there were the Turnbull and Asser shirts and other accessories. Yeah, now, Turnbull and Asser in London, uh, we've been there. And uh, we stood on the very spot where Sean Connery was getting fitted or his yeah. suit in Dr. No. So we should, we should have gotten great, suits then. It's a great, <laughs> yeah, it's a great it really shop. Is. Terrific place. Yeah. All right. All right. Now another, another thing with the authenticity, with the clothing here, a little bit later, there's a top hat that Valentine puts on and it came from a hatter called lock and co. Yeah. This is a real hat shop at three St. James street in London. Yep. And here they kept the real name. They didn't change it like they did with Huntsman. Yeah. And that's the same hat shop. I believe that made the trilbies for Bond, and I think even the odd job bowler hats. Yep. So yeah, it's a absolutely. real place. Yeah, it really is, and you're right. They did do those. So both of yeah. these places have good clothes, and they play it up. Yep. You know, and it's and I actually think it's really cool that they used the real places with you know the importance that they put on clothes in this thing. Yeah. That they used real places behind it. Yeah, I think that's cool. I like now, that I, a lot. Yeah, now, I will put the disclaimer in here that Spy Movie Navigator has received no compensation for these mentions. Now, if Locke and Co. or the Huntsman want, or Turnbull and Asser want to talk to us about it, we might change that answer in the future. <laughs> yeah. But Give as us of a now, call. we've got no compensation for those mentions. All right. 
So at the tailor shop we're talking about, Harry walks into a dining room and a gentleman is seated at the head of the table and with the rest of the chairs empty. And Harry calls him Arthur, who responds by calling Harry Galahad. Ooh. Okay, so wait, okay. we've had two Lancelots, an Arthur, a Merlin, and a Galahad. Hmm. Some interesting code names for these guys, huh? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if we look back into the stories about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, Galahad was considered to be like the bravest of in the world. And an attribute one might assign to Harry here, since he was so brave. Lancelot was Galahad's father and was also thought to be quite brave so okay wait so let me make sure i've got this right so we have galahad who's harry yeah. and then lancelot who we've had two of is galahad's father in the legends of the knights of in the, the legends, table yeah, yeah, yeah. okay yeah yeah it's confusing but obvious intent to bring in the knights of the round table even though their table is uh, rectangular that they're sitting at a round one would have been kind of cool <laughs> Yeah, they, the, they missed it there, huh? <laughs> yeah. The code of conduct for the Knights of the Round Table was honor, honesty, valor, and loyalty. And that's pretty much what Harry lays out to Eggsy that a kingsman must act like. So it's kind of kind of interesting little connection there again. All right. We'll have a few more comments about the Knights of the Round Table as we go along here today because there's a lot of references here. There of are, course. And not all of them work. No. we'll talk about that back to the movie Harry sits down and he and Arthur put on glasses which make the empty chairs have people appear in them it's kind of like was like a Google Glass experience but these didn't look like Google Glass Valentine however does wear a Google Glass or his eyewear throughout the movie Michael Caine's playing the role here of Chester King or Arthur in this movie I love Michael Caine and of course he was in the trilogy of Harry Palmer movies in the mid-1960s that Harry Saltzman produced. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now, a fun fact about this name, Chester King, which yeah. is his given name, Arthur's his you know, code name or whatever. Yeah. But Chester King, there's a guy sitting at the table who in real life has the name Chester King. Hmm. Now, he's in this movie, and he's also in, in Kingsman, The Golden Circle, the second Kingsman movie which are the only two movies he's been credited with. I'm not going to go into all of his extensive CV because it is really big. But I do want to point out that he and his family at one point owned Stoke Park, the Ah. country club where they filmed the golf (laughs) match in Goldfinger. Yeah. And he's also an advisor to Marv Films who created these movies and the Elton John movie Rocket Man. Mm. Could that be how they got Sir Elton John into the second Kingsman movie? (laughs) Was this guy? He was an odd character for that movie. So I'm sure that was it. (laughs) Yeah. So was Chester King a play on words for Arthur being King Arthur? Or was it a call out to this advisor to Marv Films? Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. It's a, it's a bit of a puzzle. But I'd be betting on the, the call out to the advisor. Yeah, that's I would what, think so. That's what I get. All right. So they, so they give a toast to the deceased Lancelot from a very special old decanter. Kind of reminds you of the toast at the end of No Time to Die. That was influenced, had to be influenced by this practice here. You know, when M, after giving the toast, says, okay, now back to work. Well, these guys are toasting to the deceased. And apparently they do toast at any time they lose one of their agents. So Merlin comes in and has Arthur and Harry put on their glasses as he shows them an image against a mirror while describing the problem they need to solve. This is the now back to work moment. All right. So here we go. Yes. 
I like that tie-in with No Time to Die, yeah, pulling definitely. from this. I think that that's really good. Yeah. Now, the other thing is this whole thing about putting the glasses on and looking up at the mirror where they can then see this this image, but nobody else in the room can. Yeah. It really seems like it's a modernized version of the briefing that Q gives Bond in M's office in Moonraker. In that movie, Q hits a button and the mirror gets replaced with a screen showing us a crash scene. Yeah, 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 yeah where here the glasses show the image so nobody else in the room can see it if they don't have the glasses. Yeah. So to me, this is one of those, we're going to borrow for this idea about technology and gadgets evolve. Yeah, it's cool. I thought it was a good scene, and the glasses concept is a good concept. Now, the mission here is to stop a group of mercenaries from using a biometric weapon. Uh-oh. <laughs> and they're confused about hmm. how... What <laughs> have we seen that before? Yeah. Oh, my God. And they're confused about Professor Arnold's role in all this. Remember, Professor Arnold in the beginning of the movie was uh, the guy who was... The climate change guy. Saved, the climate change guy, yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's see here. Bioweapons, yeah, okay. (laughs) They were the key in the plot on Her Majesty's Secret Service before Kingsman came out. And No Time to Die after Kingsman came out. Oh, and Mission Impossible 2. Uh, yeah, they, we had to deal there with Chimera, if you remember, the Chimera virus. So it seems to be a great plot point for these spy movies. And I'm sure we'll see more of that as we go through the next generation of spy movies. Well, especially with the pandemic to, to fall yeah, back on. Yeah. yeah. So then Harry tells Arthur that the world is changing and the Kingsmen need to change with it. Kind of sounds like C Inspector and... Kind of sounds like the whole Bond thing, really. That yep. you know, hey, you know, Bond, the world's changed, and you're you're left in the in the dark ages. So, eh, more of the same here, I think, or yep. predates it in some degree. Yep, well, I, I, yeah, I agree there. Yeah. Now, then we finally get back to Exy. Yeah, right. He was the kid who got the little medal in or the amulet from yeah. from Harry early on when he was a little kid. And we're going to skip some plot points here and jump to Eggsy in the Black Prince pub as he's talking to Harry. A guy named Rottweiler and his crew come in and they hassle Eggsy. And it's a great scene because Harry tries to talk very politely, (laughs) very upper class, because class is important here. And he gets these guys and Rottweiler and the crew are lower class people. And he gets nowhere here. But we get a great R-rated fight scene yeah. in this part of the movie. The fight scene here is brutal. <laughs> it really <laughs> it, is. It, it's fun to, to watch, but it's brutal. All right. Rottweiler is also kind of a dog, of course, with a, with a mixed reputation. Some say violent. Some say it's a good family dog, but protective. So it's an interesting name here for this character, Rottweiler. It and, is. Now, I don't think we ever hear it, but it is, the role is credited as the name Rottweiler. Yeah, right. Exactly. And the fight is all predicated by Harry's quote, manners maketh man. (laughs) (laughs) He says that while he's locking himself into the pub with these thugs. (laughs) This is kind of cool. That was, I mean, that really made a statement. Manners, and then you hear the clicking of the lock as he's doing it. Yeah. That was was really cool. Yeah. And it's a great line. So uh, him saying manners maketh man, that saying has probably been around since the 14th century or something. The earliest writing of this was like around 1519 by William Horman, titled Vulgaria. But the title of the book would be translated into something like Everyday Sayings in today's vernacular. Horman was the headmaster of Eton and then Winchester College and was a student at Winchester. 
The phrase, manners maketh man, is Winchester's motto today. So uh, that may be where Horman got the phrase. Yeah, I, I, would, I would think so. I think that's where that came from. <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway, it was a great way for Harry to set the stage for the fight. Are we going to stand around all day or are we going to fight? <laughs> that's that's another great line. That's Manners maketh man and then are we going to stand around all day or are we going to fight? Yeah. Just, that's just wonderful. It really says a lot about who Harry is. Yeah. And so the fight brings out a lot of the gadgets that we're going to see in the in Kingsman. We see the umbrella with its cool projectile lasso that lassos a thug's hand and electrocutes him. Then the, when Rottweiler shoots at Harry, the umbrella becomes a bulletproof shield. Then it shoots a yeah, stun. Yeah, I, th- I really <laughs> like that. That's, that yeah. was really cool. And he shoots a stun device at Rottweiler. And when the bartender's trying to pick up the phone to make a call, probably calling the police for help, Harry's watch shoots an amnesia dart, which knocks the bartender out. That's kind of cool. This is kind of... Kind of like the dart that Roger Moore's Bond in Moonraker uses to stop the centrifuge from spinning. If you Shooting darts that. are a good thing for a spy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Kingsman has gadgets, uh, like most spy movies, of course. So what the hell? Yeah, and, th- yeah. and this scene in general, I mean, yeah. I just totally love this scene. I mean, it was great. a fantastic fight sequence. And when it gets done, if you noticed, when Harry leaves, he puts his hand on Eggsy's shoulder. Yeah. And it ends up he put a very small radio transmitter and speaker on Eggsy's vest. Okay. So when Eggsy gets home, Dean starts well, beating Dean Eggsy. Is, Dean is Eggsy's stepdad. Just yes. That's his scene here. Right. Yeah. So Eggsy's, for, Eggsy's real dad was the one that died yes. in the opening. Yes. Right. And then this is Dean is the stepdad and he's trying to get Harry, Harry's name from Eggsy. Yeah. Like who, who was this guy? Wanted to find out who the bar fight was all about and all that. It, ex- exactly. Because Rottweiler and those other six thugs are part of Dean's crew. Yeah. So he like heads up that crew. So Harry is monitoring both Eggsy's location and he's hearing this beating Dean is giving him. Yeah. And then all of a sudden Harry speaks and his <laughs> yeah. voice plays from this thing that he placed on Eggsy's shoulder, which Shock. actually made me laugh. It shocks the hell out of Dean. It shocks the hell out of Dean. What what made me laugh about it was there was this little tiny thing that Harry put on Eggsy's vest. Yeah. And the sound of this thing sounds like it's filling the room with yeah. this voice of God coming yeah. in. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like that. Now, yeah. this whole gadget that of putting the thing on the vest and having it being able to track and, and listen, I got to think that was them beefing up the idea of what Claire puts on Don Lowe's suit coat to track him at Langley in Mission Impossible. Right. If you remember, they're sitting yep. there side by side in the cafeteria and she gets this thing on him to be able to do the tracking. Or the radioactive lint that Q shows M yeah. at the beginning of On Her Majesty's yeah. Secret Service. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like uh, we said, the technology evolves. Yeah. And they, they've evolved it here. All right, so Harry tells Eggsy, hey, meet me at the tailor shop, and we shift to that scene at Kingsman Tailor Shop. And before we get to the tailor, let's talk a little bit about Harry Hart. I wonder who he's based on. He's an agent with dark-rimmed glasses. Is he a callback to Michael Caine's Harry Palmer that we mentioned earlier? His character in the movies from Len Dayton's novels? Or... Was he influenced by the umbrella-toting proper Englishman, John Steed, from the Avengers TV show? There are a few similarities, really, with the Avengers. Hearts flat in London, the use of classic vehicles, you know, Steed-like classic cars. 
maybe Harry is an amalgamation of both Harry Palmer and John Steed, but you could see a little bit of both of them in Harry here. And I, oh, I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. I actually think that's, that's really good. Yeah. And the thing that I think they blew here was his cover name. <laughs> okay. Right. He's Galahad, which was Lancelot's son's name in the Knights of the Round Table. Okay. So Galahad is the one that Lancelot groomed into becoming a knight. So the guy who died was Lancelot, so they have to replace Lancelot and groom somebody for for that. Yeah. So shouldn't they've got done these names reversed so that if if Harry was Lancelot, he'd be grooming Galahad? Uh, my head is spinning. Yeah, it's 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 to me it just it just doesn't make sense. And in fact, in both No Time to Die and in the second Kingsman movie, they deal with the fact that people have the same name. Yeah, yeah, right. There's a there's a there's a line in the in the second Kingsman movie. You guys got to get these this this two name thing fixed. And in No Time to Die, they play off on the 007. I think they did a great job of it in No Time to Die mm-hmm. with how they played off of that. But these these names can get kind of confusing. So I, I just wish they would have cleaned that up a little bit, especially when you start thinking about what. The you know the fact that Galahad was Lancelot's son and Lancelot <laughs> grooms. Now there was probably a Lancelot who groomed Michael Caine's Galahad that we don't see here. Maybe we see that right. in the movie, right. the the Kingsman, right? So as Harry starts this grooming process to transform Eggsy, Harry asks Eggsy if he's seen Trading Places, Nikita, or Pretty Woman, <laughs> and he's trying to use those scene. as a metaphor for people who started out with a rough life that were able to change their path. Mm-hmm, yeah. And Eggsy replies, oh, like in My Fair Lady. Yeah, because he hadn't which, seen any of those three movies. Yeah, he hadn't he seen those, but he'd seen My Fair Lady, <laughs> yeah. which was the musical version of George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion. So we now know we're going to have a metamorphosis that will happen for Eggsy. The rough and tumble, smart aleck young man will be transformed, have a metamorphosis into a gentleman and a Kingsman agent. And I have to wonder if this metamorphosis theme is why butterflies become important in the next Kingsman movie, mm. The Kingsman of the Golden Circle. Ah. So yeah. Harry's going to turn Eggsy into an agent like a spy, and a metamorphosis of sorts has to occur. Yeah. In the Trading Places movie, too, you got to remember Eddie Murphy's character. He was transformed from a near-do-well to an upstanding citizen who had the last name of Valentine. That's <laughs> oh, true. <laughs> Is the Valentine in this movie going to be transformed as well? Uh, we're going to find out, I guess. Huh? Yeah, we'll so find will there out. be a metamorphosis for Valentine? That's yeah, interesting. there might be. All right, I love the conversation just before they walk into the tailor shop about nobility. This is one of my favorite parts of the movie. Eggsy is thinking nobility is being superior to others, and Harry corrects him with one of the best lines in the movie. There is nothing noble in being superior to your fellow man. True nobility is being superior to your former self. That is a really good line. It's a great line. It's often attributed to Ernest Hemingway. They didn't write this line for the movie. It's often attributed attributed to Ernest Hemingway, but others say it goes back to 1897 and maybe even to a Hindu proverb. But it's a great one because its meaning really permeates the entire movie. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so I love it. It's a great great part. And it's kind of easy to miss. Yep, that's true. But I like that. It really does kind of set the tone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So then Harry puts his hand on a mirror and a palm print reader verifies his identity. 
This is similar to the palm reader that Jason Bourne must pass through to get to the safe deposit box in the Bourne Identity movie. So, again, you know, not that palm readers are uh, anything cutting edge. I mean, they're they're there, but, you know, yeah, you could turn your iPhone on and get at your access to your iPhone with your fingerprint. So, it's uh, not a big deal, but we've seen it in other movies. So, now, when they're in this little room, the room drops. <laughs> I like that. They must have definitely gone to the Haunted Mansion at Disney Parks because <laughs> that's, okay. that's exactly what I was thinking when I saw it. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is so it the, going down or is the top going up? <laughs> yeah. How far down does this go? Ah. And when the door opens, Harry says, we're late. Now, of course, you know, tardiness is kind of a common attribute. With spies, Bond was always late in everything he did and so on. So, And we talked about that in other podcasts. Remember when Q quips at Bond and Thunderball with the line? Now that we're all here, <laughs> when, when they were waiting for the meeting, and here comes Agent 007. When yeah. 01 yeah. through 9 are lined up except him, uh, yeah. seated, seated in the chairs. All right. They're all there waiting for him. Yeah. Right? Now that we're all here. Uh, and that's what, ha- that's what happens here. Yeah. Now, we then shift to Valentine's ranting. He's looking at a picture of the cut in half Lancelot. So the second Lancelot Mm -hmm. and he's upset because nobody knows who this guy is. He's like, who is this guy? And he's talking to somebody that looks like he might be in the white house. (laughs) And it appears to be Barack Obama who was president when this movie came out. Yeah. Yeah. And government officials are part of this movie as we're going to see as we go through this. So we'll jump a little bit further to the scene where we see the candidates to replace Lancelot sitting in a plane. And this includes Eggsy. He's one of the candidates to try to replace Lancelot. Yeah. They've done some other exercises already, and this is just another one they have to do, right? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Scary one. (laughs) It's a scary one. And they're going to have to do a skydive and try to land on a target. Uh Now, we've seen skydiving in other spy movies. Most of the time, they don't wear helmets. Mm -hmm. One quick example I can think of is Moonraker. I mean, we see everybody jumps out of that plane and none of them are wearing helmets. Yeah, yeah. So what I wasn't sure about is why did they have the helmets on in this movie? Yeah. And what's the real world tie into that? Uh, I mean, a lot of times, though, you're seeing people, they're jumping, skydiving from maybe ten to 12,000 feet or so. This allows you really, you could jump without supplemental oxygen there because that's, that's okay. like a normal okay. skydive or 5,000 feet. Sometimes they do it shorter. But these candidates in this movie are jumping from 30,000 feet, I think they said, which would require some kind of oxygen supply, I would, I would imagine, delivery system, so that you could breathe 30,000 feet is pretty freaking far up there. And so the helmets let them take oxygen with them. And this that, that whole thing is called a halo dive, of course, high altitude, low opening. We saw Tom Cruise do that, a, a halo dive in Mission Impossible, Fallout, and... Cruz himself jumped out of that plane at 25,000 feet, kind of nuts, but uh, he <laughs> likes doing his stunts. And that may have been an influence really by, that may have been influenced by this scene or maybe the dive that Roxy does a little bit later in the movie. So yeah, I think right, that, that might be it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that explains it. That makes, that makes sense. Now I kind of see why they've got the helmets on because they got to be able to breathe. <laughs> yeah. Plus they now, needed to communicate with each other. I mean, Oh, that's true. Right? On the way down, they're talking to each other, and you, you yeah. certainly wouldn't be able to do that without Alana. Well, and that communication became very important because yeah. when they fall to around 25,000 feet, Merlin tells them one of them doesn't have a parachute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's go back to Moonraker. 
Yeah. In that one, Bond gets pushed out of a plane by Jaws. James isn't even wearing a parachute. Right. So he has to figure out what to do there. Jaws has a parachute, but the cord breaks and his chute won't open. Yeah. So is this whole Merlin telling him they don't have a parachute like Jaws' chute not opening? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, I liked I liked that he did that because you're, you're thinking, hey, this is a training mission, and the Kingsman is pretty, yeah, pretty tense. And now they're saying, okay, hey, one of you guys, let's see what you do. One of you guys doesn't have a parachute. <laughs> And you have to communicate, which yeah. is why they've got the helmets on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like it. I like yeah, it. Yeah, I like it. All right. So after this scene, we then get into a scene that kind of talks about social class in a little bit more detail. Mm-hmm. And we did a podcast where we talked about real spies versus movie spies with former CIA operator Andrew Bustamante. That was fun. And yeah, it really was. And he told us that spies need to take on the appearance of different social classes, depending on the setting they're going into. Yeah, yeah. So... In an example of that in this movie, Harry has to play a billionaire to approach Valentine and attend a party at Valentine's mansion using the cover name Mr. DeVere. Mm. So this seems like a plausible cover. Yeah. Now, Matthew Vaughn's real name is Matthew Allard DeVere Drummond. (laughs) So this has to be a nod to Vaughn's real name. So we had Chester King. We've got DeVere. (laughs) That's that's good. Yeah. Yeah. And let's not forget the Knights of the Round Table. <laughs> oh, that's 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 true. Yeah. Anyway, this is this is a cool scene. I like it. Oh, it, it absolutely is, and it's really funny too. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love the silver tray comes out on wheels, you know, and they roll back the tray to reveal a bunch of McDonald's. I wonder how much they paid for that product oh, placement. Man. Well, and then they serve this McDonald's with a 1945 Chateau Lafitte Rothschild line. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man. And it reminded me of, there was a 2004 movie. It wasn't a spy movie, but it was called Sideways. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And in that movie, Miles opens up his treasured bottle of 1961 Cheval Blanc while he's eating a double-double burger at an In-N-Out Burger restaurant. Those are good burgers, by the way. But what, what, yeah, they are. But, and what a corollary there between these two movies. Even though the Sideways isn't a spy movie, here you get the McDonald's with the Rothschild. A 61 shovel blanc and sideways. Just, it's great. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. All right. And I think it even gets funnier when Harry suggests Twinkies and a 1937 Chateau Kim for dessert. Yeah. I just love that. Yeah. Twinkies is good. I like that line. That actually made the scene, the Twinkies line was really good. All right. All right. That was classic Bond right there. Or was it really an answer to the comedian George Carlin's line, what wine goes with Captain Crunch? (laughs) (laughs) I I think I would suggest that the Chateau de Cam would go well with Captain Crunch. There you go. (laughs) It would probably go with pretty much anything. Yeah. Uh, Good stuff. (laughs) It really is. All right, so then then we get out of this lighthearted stuff here, and the conversation moves a little more serious, talking about Valentine's foundation to fight climate change. And Harry shows his knowledge about the foibles of fighting climate change. And this is just like how Bond always yeah, seems to know everything. about everything he encounters when he yeah. gets when he encounters it. Yeah. Then Harry quotes Professor Arnold, which surprises Valentine. And then he asks, do you like spy movies, Mr. DeVere? And we have a great conversation, so let's hear that. Do you like spy movies, Mr. DeVere? Nowadays, they're all a little serious for my taste. The old ones. 
Marvelous. Give me a far-fetched theatrical plot any day. <laughs> the old Bond movies. Oh, man. Oh, when I was a kid, that was my dream job. Gentleman spy. I always felt the old Bond films were only as good as the villain. As a child, I rather fancied a future as a colorful megalomaniac. What a shame we both had to grow up. All right, this dialogue was fantastic, really, for a few reasons. First of all, it, it really, it's a direct nod to the spy movies that came before this movie, especially James Bond movies. We always look for where it, movies can influence another movie, and this dialogue really spells it out for us. Another reason is that we see James Bond have a direct conversation with villains in most of the Bond movies, and these are often telling. And here, As, as this one is here, yeah. Yeah. As this one. When Harry leaves, Valentine tells Gazelle that he put a nano tracker in the wine <laughs> and that they'd know where Harry went for the next 24 hours. We really have seen this kind of tracking stuff in James Bond movies, first with the chip they implant in Bond in Casino Royale and then in Smart Blood Inspector, and there's even Smart Blood in No Time to Die. Yeah, you have a lot of that in these spy movies. So again, you've got, you've got to get that tracker in the bloodstream. Yeah. <laughs> Again, they use a lot of the same tropes over and over again, but still fun. All right, so then, then we move to another scene where Valentine ends up telling this princess, called Princess Tilde, that she can't go, she can't leave unless she agrees to his demands. Remember, he was talking to the president before. He had his demands there. Mm -hmm. She refuses, so he locks her up in a cell. And as Valentine leaves her from the cell, you hear someone from another cell shout, I want to speak to the British consul. Yeah. Well, now, in both Hitchcock versions of the movie, The Man Who Knew Too Much, when someone asked to speak to their consul, they were quickly given that opportunity. It was like the policing stopped yeah. so that you could talk to your consul. But Valentine doesn't do that here. <laughs> no, no. All right. So we talked about the names from the Knights of the Round Table here a few times. We have another one to talk about. We move to a scene where we find out that Roxy's sponsor has a code name of Percival. This is the name of one of the knights who is credited as being the hero in the search for the Holy Grail in some tellings of the legend. In other writings, it was Galahad who was the hero. So Eggsy's sponsor was Harry, who was also called Galahad. Again, an interesting use of these names, but wow, it's confusing. All right. It really, it really does. <laughs> The important thing is they're using all these names from the Knights of the Round Table, I guess. And yeah. that's, maybe you don't have to worry about who's who. Yeah, I don't think you do because I think they re, they continue to reuse the name. Right? If Lancelot dies, then there's a new Lancelot, right? So if yeah. there's, no, there's no continuity, which the Bond people would love because they never have any continuity in anything they do. So this is good. <laughs> but it's confusing to the audience. All right, Especially if you're like us trying to read into these things and going like, what is it with these names? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just ignore all that and just watch the movie. All right. Yeah. Merlin tells Eggsy that his father reached this point in the training, and there are no safety nets. So this reminded me really of a scene in the 80, 1986 movie Top Gun where Viper tells Maverick that he was a lot like his father, Duke Mitchell. We also find out that Maverick's father was hit while flying and saved three planes before he died. Kind of like how Eggsy's father jumped on that grenade in the opening scene in this movie. So, again, a lot of connections here to other things and events that have happened in other movies. Oh, I, mi uh, I missed that one. That's that's a good one. I like that. Yeah, it's kind of like cool. Kind of cool. 
Yeah. All right. So now we got another cut and we get to a scene in Harry's office and there's a wall with the front page of the newspaper from the day after he completed a successful mission pasted on it. And the point here was that no one knew what he did. The front page of the paper weren't that he saved everybody from some spectacular thing. Right. Because his achievement should remain secret. Yeah. Now, in that podcast we talked about a few minutes ago with Andrew Bustamante, the CIA operator, he talked about how the proper mission was to get in, get out, unnoticed. Yep. Just like in the TV show or the movie Mission Impossible. Yeah. I mean, so this seems very realistic to me, and I, I actually like this touch in this movie. Yeah. So then Harry gives Eggsy a lesson in how to become a gentleman, how to make a proper martini. You don't see it on screen, yeah. but he tells us that he taught him how to do that. We're going to find out how Eggsy learned about making a proper martini later in the movie. What a great poke at James Bond yeah. and his way of getting a, a martini. Yeah. I just think hey, it's great. There's also a, a really nice poke at traditional spy movies, especially Bond movies, when Valentine has his hand on a biometric palm reader and he complains it hurts. Cause, <laughs> oh, that's right. Because <laughs> yeah, they'll ask him, what's wrong with a simple switch? And Valentine says, it has to be complicated as the machine is very dangerous and biometric is needed. It's like, okay, let's get something complicated to do something simple. That's what we need. But, well, and I, and I love it because it's really like them, you know, <laughs> flipping off Bond here, right? It, it pokes fun at the need for these complex, exten- expensive setups. Yeah. And what's wrong with it's, a switch? <laughs> with, without it being as over the top, as what we saw in the Austin Power movies. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's it. These are great digs at the at the Bond movies without being super over the top on it. I think I think it's great. Yeah, it is. It's fun. It's fun. <laughs> so then, as they're leaving the this area, they bump into Valentine, who is buying a tuxedo. Now, one of these little behind the scenes things that I really like here is the real life guy who has the title of head cutter and creative director from Huntsman, which mm-hmm. is the real tailor shop. This guy's name is Campbell Carey. He's standing behind Valentine in the fitting room along with Gazelle. So he's the one with the patch on his sleeve. Uh-huh. So I, yeah. I think it's a really nice touch that they are really doing this tie-in to the Huntsman Tailor Shop. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So it was the real guy. It was the real guy. Yeah, that's cool. And Harry recommends Valentine get a top hat from Lock & Co. Mm-hmm. since he's going to go to Ascot. Now, we mentioned that this is a real thing already. Yes. And it allows them to have a bug in the hat so they can find out where he's going and what he's saying. Yeah. Uh, now all these candidates that are basically trying out to be in Kingsman, they had to choose a dog and they had to do and train the dog and do all these different things with the dog. And Eggsy's dog is called JB. It doesn't stand for James Bond. It doesn't stand for Jason Bourne. It stands for Jack Bauer. <laughs> As Eggsy tells Arthur, uh, all right, this is a, this is a new callback for us, right? Because this JB thing, of course, we've seen JB emblazoned on the casket in Thunderball and so on. Anytime you hear JB and spy stuff, we're thinking James Bond. So Or Jason Bourne. Or Jason Bourne, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Actually loses this competition and Roxy wins and because you had to shoot the dog. <laughs> and Eggsy wouldn't shoot his dog. Arthur welcomes Roxy to the Kingsman and gives her the name Lancelot. There you go. Okay, so wait. We now have a young female Lancelot who was Galahad's father, yeah. our third Lancelot of the movie. Yeah. 
And so to me, this is getting really weird because if Lancelot's supposed to be Galahad's father, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, Michael Caine yeah, was 81, yeah. Sophie Cookson was only 24. Aye, aye, aye. Could, <laughs> I, I, I get it, but if you're going to use the parallels, use them so they can be used correctly throughout the movie. <laughs> this is the problem with reusing code names, which is why the James Bond people didn't do that. It's really James Bond. It's, it's not a code name. All right? All right. I'm sure there was a Galahad and a Lancelot before this movie's time even. So we may find out in the new movie, The King's Man, right? That there were a bunch of these before. They keep reusing the same names. So anyway, there you go. All right. So then a a bunch of stuff happens and Harry ends up controlling a cab that Eggsy's in and brings him away from a fight to Harry's house, which happens to be on a street featured in the movie Love Actually, which Colin Firth was in Uh prior to this. I mean, it's the scene where Mark holds up the poster board signs professing his love to Juliet. And now this whole thing has become, you know, doing that has become a TikTok trope. Kind of interesting the way they, that, that little tie-in happens. Yeah. All right. We saw the bar fight. We thought that was pretty cool. But let's go to the real fight now. <laughs> <laughs> the fight at the church in Kentucky. <laughs> this fight is R-rated. It's so well done. It's probably... I don't know. Maybe the best scene in the movie. And the fight itself has got to be three minutes long. It's violent. Yeah, it's a little bit over three minutes, I think. It's very, very violent. At one point, Harry uses a lighter kind of flamethrower during the fight to burn a guy, which has really got to be straight out of license to kill. I mean, we remember that. Bond flaming Sanchez, right? And Colin Firth did about 80% of the stunts in this movie, including a lot of this fight. Although... A stuntman was used for some parts. Kind of sounds like Tom Cruise, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You got to like it when they do their own stunts. Yeah. Hey. Right. So a- after the fight here, then we get something we don't get in most spy movies. Harry exits the church and he's confronted by Valentine, who knows that Harry's a Kingsman. And Valentine talks about how this isn't like one of those old spy movies they talked about from that clip that we just played, mm-hmm. where the villain spills his plan to the spy and comes <laughs> up with a convoluted way to kill the spy, and then the spy's going to come up with an equally convoluted way to escape. <laughs> we've seen a lot of that. <laughs> they, we've seen that in most of these spy movies. But here, Valentine says, well, this ain't that kind of movie. He draws his gun, he turns his head because, remember, he doesn't like blood, and he shoots Harry at point-blank range in the head. Yeah, we always say to these cooks, just shoot him! Just shoot him! <laughs> and here, we finally get a villain that does it. All right. You got to like that part. <laughs> Although it is violent. Plan, just shoot him! Just shoot him! To show how maniacal Valentine is, he has a conversation with Gazelle and says he only killed one guy. Harry. <laughs> she says Valentine killed just killed all those people in the church. Valentine says, hey, they killed each other. <laughs> okay. All right. Technically, I guess that's true. But it shows that this guy's kind of wacky. <laughs> He's nuts. <laughs> you think? Yeah. We often, I mean, you see villains a lot of times. They just twist reality to kind of justify their own actions and whatever. So here we, we hear Valentine's grand plot. He wants the population of humans to be called down to slow down and reverse climate change. There's a great idea. Let's kill people so that we can reverse this climate change thing. Okay, there's a plan. Ah, that's what those well, SIM it's cards a, it's were It's a plan. For. <laughs> yeah, that's why he did. Gave away all those SIM cards for free, right? All over the world. Get everyone to have huge aggression and then kill each other. 
and Valentine will be looked up to as a savior, he thinks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that kind of sounds like it might be a little hard to control once you get the ball rolling. <laughs> yeah. God, well, that all kind of Drax. He thought he was going to be a savior, too, by doing what he was going to do in Moonraker, right? Well, that's all true. Right, let's kill off all those people and start a new world. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. That, that's what the chips in the neck are for, though. To control, to control the situation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. People who have the chips in their neck won't have the aggression and die, but they can be controlled. And these chips could be controlled to explode, like what happened to Professor Arnold to keep the chip wearers in line. So <laughs> <laughs> Valentine can control who lives and who dies remotely. We just saw something similar to that in No Time to Die. Instead of chips, nanobots that were used so there you go okay so i i get it yeah this guy's nuts he's nuts. He wants to control things he's crazy he's crazy <laughs> okay so then we get into we talked about the fact that valentine's influencing these people so there's a scene with eggsy and arthur and eggsy for some reason switches these brandy snifters with arthur when arthur's not looking mm-hmm. and it's a good thing because arthur had poison in the one that he gave eggsy and the poison was activated from a pen. And we saw that pen, or similar pen to this, in the gadget room yeah, in the tailor yeah, shop. Yeah. And in, in Moonraker, Dr. Goodhead has a pen that has a needle on it that could be used to poison someone. So yeah. pens are kind of handy here. Yeah, and real spies had pens similar to these. So these are kind of real things. Not, not the remotely activated one with the poison, but similar ones. So Arthur activates the pen, and he dies. Because, because of the switch snifters. Switch the snifters. As he got distracted, Exy distracted him, and he switched it. So, now I have a question. Did Exy kill Arthur because he switched the snifters, or did Arthur kill himself? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> by, by activating the pen, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, how Valentine viewed the deaths of the church. I don't know. I'd go with uh, Exy, he killed him, because he switched it. You know, it. See, now, I, I'm not sure it's a tough one. I mean, you yeah. know, he wouldn't have died if Arthur hadn't pulled the pin on the, or pulled that thing on the pen. Yeah, well. Oh, but was- anyways... Yeah. Arthur dies, and yep. his death here is... I'm going back to Knights of the Round Table again, sorry. <laughs> his death is different than one of the versions of the Knights of the Round Table. Oh, yeah. In most of the versions, Arthur is in a battle with a guy named Mordred. They end up killing each other. Now, we don't have a character named Mordred here in, in The Kingsman. No. And Arthur and Eggsy didn't kill each other, no. like the two of these, like Arthur and Mordred did in the, in the, in the legend. But Eggsy was told he could become the new Galahad, and he's still alive. Mm-hmm. So I think they missed an opportunity again to do a better tie-in with the Knights of the Round Table. I mean, otherwise, why start using these names? Yeah, uh, all right. And, and they didn't use a round table, so, you know, what the hell. I think they should have. <laughs> all right, I'm going to say it again. All right, so really, they should have consulted with us, obviously, on this Knights of the Round Table <laughs> thing <laughs> before they were writing this stuff. They missed some opportunities there. <laughs> Yeah, because we're the experts. <laughs> yeah, as you could tell, we can explain this precisely. <laughs> Yikes. All right, Eggsy digs the chip out of Arthur's neck because he saw the scar in Arthur's neck thinking, wait a minute, you're one of them, so there you go. And uh, Arthur's phone gets a message saying, hey, go to a safe zone or fly to a specific longitude and latitude coordinate within six hours. Now, of course, anytime you hear that in a movie, longitude and latitude stuff, we know Tom's going to go look that up, so... 
So where is it, Tom? I know you looked it up. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, I did. I did look it up. Okay. Um, it's it's someplace in the west central part of Russia. Okay. Near, and I'm going to blow this name near Sverdlov. Is this Sverdlovsk? Yeah, near Sverdlovsk Oblast. Oh, yeah, now the train there though is flat. It's not mountainous like the scene we see for where Valentine's headquarters mm. or safe zone, that yeah. bunker is. Okay. So they've <laughs> given this coordination and I don't understand why they did it. We see, we've seen this in Bond movies too. It's like, if you're going to give the coordinate, give a coordinate that looks plausible because some geek like me is going to look it up. Yeah. Yeah. They don't want a real <laughs> coordinate anyway. I mean, it is a real coordinate. No, anyway, you could go find it. So it's going to be somewhere on earth. But it's not right, where but you we could give thought. a coordinate in the middle of a mountain that has nothing to do with anything. Yeah. And at least Safe. when you look on a map, you can see, hey, that's the mountains. Okay. <laughs> All right. So now we're down to Merlin, Roxy, and Eggsy who have to deal with this entire situation. So we see the ground open up in front of the headquarters, and a plane does this Harrier-type vertical takeoff. So, hey, that's kind of cool. Yeah, we've seen that was Harrier. not a Harrier jet. <laughs> we see a real Harrier transport help General Koskoff defect in their living daylights, for instance, and the ground opening up like that has to be an homage to the volcano lair in You Only Live Twice and the Professor Joe Butcher's compound, which I love, <laughs> licensed to kill, where the helicopter lands. So it's all kind of cool. So Opening up the ground is great. <laughs> yeah. So the plane and the place where the ground opens up are fake here, but it's a nice touch. So Lancelot, who's the name that they've given to Roxy now, needs to use a prototype personal trans-atmospheric vehicle to take out one of Valentine's satellites. Now, just off the top of my head, what, we've got Bond movies, um, Die Another Day, Diamonds Are Forever. Mm-hmm, satellites. Um, yeah, where they have to take out satellites. Yeah, I liked the concept here of the trans-atmospheric vehicle. What do you think? I, I thought it was kind of cool. Well, you know how I love heights, and if you look at that, yeah, that would be a it's supposed to get you to heights. Yeah. There's no way I'd be able to do that. No. I mean, it's cool to think about what they're doing here, but can you imagine the isolation and fear you'd have while you're up there trying to do this mission? Yeah. Right. So now it is basic technology and getting up there would be possible for the balloons. I don't know if you could get a human outside of things with the way the atmosphere is going to work to be able to do that, but the principles are somewhat sound. Mm -hmm. I mean, this thing attaches the two balloons that take you to the edge of the atmosphere. And weather balloons can climb to 20 miles or higher. So in this case, she engages the missiles when she's at about 24 miles up. Yeah. So yeah. the part of the balloons getting there makes sense. Again, I'm not sure if she could get there. Yeah, right. And just as Merlin tells her, and this is real, I mean, the balloons are going to expand as the air pressure decreases, and eventually the balloons burst. This is what, this is what happens with weather balloons. So when Roxy's balloon burst, she's going to fall to the ground from 24 miles in the air, making this one hell of a halo dive. Yeah. I'm just not sure how plausible that part is. So I did look up if you could do this. And there's a company called Space Perspective. Again, we get no compensation from them. (laughs) That has developed a hydrogen-filled balloon that'll carry a capsule. So you're not riding like she is kind of out in in the in the atmosphere uh-huh. you're oh, in a yeah. capsule that can hold eight people and go about 18 miles in the air and then return to the ground without the balloon bursting <laughs> they they expect to be make this a tourist thing next year 
with the six-hour ride costing around one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. Mm, yeah, no. Yeah, don't don't sign me up for that <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, no, me neither. No. Buy, no. buy me a bottle of Delmore instead. <laughs> right, right. The last thirty minutes of this movie really is the climax, where spies the spies have to enter the villain's lair. Of course, you always have to enter the villain's lair and stop the destruction of the unchipped masses. The communications between Merlin and Eggsy here are, of course, flawless. Even even in the underground bunker, I mean, how does the signal work? Hey, maybe they borrowed Mission Impossible's communication systems. I don't know, because they always work. It's yeah, like, absolutely. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's right. great stuff. But then, then we get this verbal punch that lands directly between James Bond's eyes. Oh, yeah, I love this. We mentioned that, that Harry was going to teach Eggsy how to make a proper <laughs> martini. So here, Eggsy gets asked if he'd like a drink. And Eggsy says, martini, gin, not vodka, obviously, stirred for 10 seconds while glancing at an unopened bottle of vermouth. <laughs> right, so if we, the lesson that Eggsy learned, he learned well, because this is the exact opposite of what Bond does, right? It's not shaken. Yeah. Uh, and Bond usually has vodka, and gin is the traditional British ingredient in a martini. Yeah. So I, I just I just love this. This is kind of like, yeah, okay, Bond, here's how you really do a martini. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Vesper had a little gin in it. <laughs> well, that's that's true. <laughs> One part, three parts. Yeah. Vodka. All right. Yeah. All right. So then <laughs> late, later in this lair, Exy uses his watch to stun the Scandinavian prime minister and takes over his computer. So this watch comes back again. And we talked about it when Harry used it. Mm-hmm. Now Exy's using the same type of thing. Yeah, yeah, and we get the long fight, a big long fight in the in Valentine's Lair. There are a lot of guns. The Kingsman gadgets are used. There's lots of action, pretty much like every other spy movie, really. <laughs> <laughs> Huge orchestration of fights. At one point, Eggsy thinks he's doomed, and he tells Roxy to call his mother and tell her that he loves her and to lock the baby in the bathroom and throw away the key because of all this stuff's going to happen and they're going to blow her head up or whatever. It's kind of that sappy crap that we hate at the end of No Time to Die. And, oh, yes. You know, we, I don't want to see this in spy movies, but uh, figure out how to get out of the situation, please. I mean, that's your job. You're a spy, for Christ's sake. I mean, God, got to <laughs> figure a way out. Don't let me know. Oh, God, I'm really... Hey, hey these, spy, hey, these guys need to be above all that. All right. Yeah, so, well, hey. and here, Eggsy does figure a way out. Yeah. He comes up with this plan and tells Merlin to activate the chips in all of the people so that their heads will explode. Yeah. Right. Just like what happened to professor Arnold. So we know the chip can explode the head. Now when the implants are activated, we hear the song pomp and circumstance and we <laughs> see the heads explode in a pattern. Yeah. It's actually kind of a fun scene. Of and death. coordinated with the music. It's nice. Yeah. And co- yeah. And it, so it's, it's a fun scene of death yeah. but, and it's very similar. I mean, very similar to the part of the title sequence in No Time to Die. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. In No Time to Die's title sequence, the no masks explode in a similar fashion. Yeah. No masks being NOH, the, the yeah. masks that we see in the in that movie. So they explode in a very similar fashion to what we see here in The Kingsman. Now, the Bond folks had to use this scene as inspiration for that part of the title sequence. It works really well here, and it works really well in No Time to Die. Yeah, it does. And now let's get to the cringeworthy part of the movie. Oh, I know where you're going here. (laughs) (laughs) Exy tells Tilda that he has to go save the world. 
So Tilda responds that if he saves the world, she'll let Eggsy do a specific sex act. <laughs> we won't repeat that's how it. That's how you're going to say it. Okay. We won't repeat it on this podcast, but you'll know it when you hear it. Uh, Matthew yeah, Vaughn you says, won't miss it. <laughs> Vaughn, the director, says he came up with that line as an homage to some of the sexual quips at the end of Bond movies. You know, keeping the British end up, sir, preparing for re-entry. Uh, well, Vaughn took this line into the R rating territory here for sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Maybe I think I think forget everything else in the movie. That one line would have slapped the R rating on it. Yeah, maybe beyond. <laughs> uh, all right, in the in the fight scene, Eggsy kills tons of guards single handedly, much like Bond kills just about everybody in No Time to Die. <laughs> I don't know how this is possible, but are all henchmen bad shots? I mean, no one can I, hit. I, I ex- I think that's actually one of their interview questions. It's got to be. They only can get hired as a henchman if you can't shoot. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, anyway, there's a nice fight between Eggsy and Gazelle with her blades. The shot of her jumping out of the window kind of has a feeling of the movie The Lion King. Oh, absolutely. Right? Kind of cool. Kinda yeah, cool. it really was. And this, fight, this, and this fight was really cool with, between the two of them. I mean, it takes about four minutes, and Valentine ends up dying with one of Gazelle's blades through his back. And again, we get Valentine poking at other spy movies because he says, is this the part where you say some really bad pun? (laughs) And Eggsy retorts, it's like you said to Harry, this ain't that kind of movie, bruv. So, you know, it's, it, I love how he turns this around because, and throughout this whole movie, they've both borrowed and poked fun at the Bond movies. Yeah, they did. You know, in this scene, when Valentine says that Bond would have had some quip, but I think because he called back to what, what Valentine said to Harry here, it's a perfect response from Eggsy here. Yeah, it is. It's good. And it, it, uh, it transitions to the next great part where Eggsy goes back to Princess Dilda's promise. (laughs) <laughs> and wants to collect on it. <laughs> Merlin's is watching all of this. He sees what's happening on his monitor. Uh, and he sees Tilda in her cell there that now Eggsy got into. And she rolls over and you see her naked butt. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Merlin says it all. Oh, my word. <laughs> and he closes the monitor. Uh, and then the credits start. So, there so you that go. must be the end of the movie. Oh, wait. No, it's not. We're not, we're not no, you think there. that would be the end of the movie? But we're not quite there. No. Eggsy has some unfinished business back home. Mm-hmm. So we end up getting a replay, kind of, of the fight in the Black Prince from earlier in the movie. This time with Eggsy in charge, not Harry. There's a conversation in the pub. Eggsy starts to leave. And we get the manners maketh man quote from him <laughs> as he locks the door just like Harry did. Yeah. He uses his umbrella to throw a glass beer mug, hitting Dean in the head, yeah. and says, are we going to stand around here all day, or are we going to fight? Just like Harry did. Like Harry. The yeah. metamorphosis is complete. Eggsy is now a Kingsman, and the movie ends. All right. The movie has ended, and that's a wrap for us. We like this movie. We know this was a long podcast, but there were many callbacks and things to talk about in this movie, in part because it was designed to give a wink and a nod there's so many other spy movies. This has been Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzotto. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com and our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Remember, please subscribe to our show right now. Hit that subscribe button. 
Check out our videos on our Cracking the Code of Spy Movies YouTube channel. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it.